Don't look now, but Massacre Radio is back like acid in the gestion, baby. <laughs> Welcome to this, the season three premiere, episode 25 to be exact, if you're keeping the books there at home. Yes, it is certainly something to celebrate because I, of course, am your host, Members Only Dave. And for the occasion, the season three premiere, you know, we have a big time guest joining us. The calendar might say 2024, but the guest schedule says none other than Frank Cannonlotter himself. Talking to him about the Basket Case Trilogy, what kind of car he drives, whether or not he enjoys mayonnaise, the Miracle Whip, all that sort of stuff. And hey, what do you say I stop flapping my gums and we just get down to it? Onward and upward, let's get this hype train a-rolling. Come on! This is Massacre Radio. You're listening to the number one radio station in the universe. Massacre Radio on WKMA Cleveland, an HD2 station. Turn it up and rip the knob off. Joining me now, courtesy of the Massacre Radio Hotline, which you too can call at 440-941-8585, it's none other than Frank Hendenlotter. You know him from the Basket Case Trilogy, as well as Brain Damage, Frankenhooker, among others. So how about it, Frank? Thank you for carving out time for us today on Massacre Radio. How are we doing? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. Excellent, excellent. And don't forget Bad Biology. That's the most fucked up one of them all. (laughs) Of course. How could I forget about Bad Biology? Let's start from the beginning here, Frank. I wanted to ask you about Basket Case, of course, but specifically the stop-motion sequences in the film. I love what they add to it, and I know you shot all those yourself. That had to be very labor-intensive. Did you have any animation experience prior to that, or was that just one of those things where you kind of had to figure it out as you went along? Just home movie shit, but I don't have the patience to do stop-motion, okay? And I also didn't have anybody I knew that could really do it Plus, I had a, the monster that we have wasn't made for stop motion. So it was just terrible. I'm alone on the set. There was nobody really there to help me. I lost it immediately. <laughs> and, you know, instead of doing, you know, caring for, I was moving it with my foot. So when I saw the footage, I thought, well, God, this is so unusable. And I took it off the projector and I just literally threw it across my apartment, landed on the floor. And I figured I'm just going to let it sit there to remind me about what a bad idea it was. It must have laid on the floor for about two months before I thought, let me take another look at it. (laughs) And when I took another look at it, I thought, well, this really stinks, but it's funny. So now maybe I could add some additional shots and make it comedy out of it. And that's basically what I did. I mean, nobody wanted to help you. How? How could that be possible? Well, I couldn't find a crew to help me with anything on that. I mean, no one was getting paid. It stretched on too long. We had to build the sets ourselves. It just was um, such a small, small production that there was no fun or glamour in working on it. If you can, <laughs> you know, I, I just wanted to finish the thing and be done with that. There were t- there were times when I thought, who's going to even see this? I it, it was a, I thought it was a waste of time at one point to even finish it. And I thought, I'm just going to stop. 
I didn't because once I do that, I'll do that for every other film I want to make. You know, that's not the answer. The answer is figuring out a way to finish it. I thought, if anything, maybe it'll play on 42nd Street for a week and then not be heard of again. Dealing with it like that, like accepting, well, those are those are the rules. That's what's going to happen. That made it easy for me to then continue and finish it. Well, when people were finally seeing the movie and really enjoying it at that, what was your reaction? I mean, unexpected or not, it had to feel good, right? Oh, I was absolutely flabbergasted. I mean, it just was, I just didn't know what to make of it. And, I, you know, it opened at, it was only playing Midnight's across the country back when it first opened. And because it was a thriving midnight movie scene going on, Mm -hmm. you know, the theater that open basket case at midnight was just a few blocks from here. And I would walk past the place and I was stunned to see lines going around the block. Absolutely stunned. I also wanted to ask you a few things about Frankenhooker. I know you said once that you grew up being a fan of Frankenstein, which clearly is an inspiration for the film, but it seems like it would be rather easy to reverse engineer a film like that. You know, like you come up with a title, then you fill in all the blanks and work backwards. What were some of the other inspirations, if any, that you were drawing from when coming up with a story for the film and the other thematic elements other than Frankenstein, of course? I don't think there were any others. I don't know. It was still, it was it was there was enough comedy material. Once you you know that you're gonna that he's gonna use parts of hookers and she's gonna become a monster hooker. The gags were just right in front of me. You know, I really did, don't remember going anywhere else for inspiration. You know, I also read that Frank and Hooker came together pretty fast, all things considered. Just kind of talk about what you remember from its initial idea to finished product, because I know it's always nice to see a plan come together, you know? That was easy to, to get the funding for. I, I went up to one. Um, I had sent another script to out to Jim Glickenhouse because I knew he's here in New York and he's started a new company. And I thought maybe he'd want to finance one. Well, the script I sent to him, he said, uh, Frank, it's it's hilarious. It's brilliant. And I'm not going to make it. <laughs> he said, why? <laughs> he goes, it, no one's going to buy this thing. No one's going to see it. It's crazy. He said, you've got to make one that's a little more down to earth. So I said, all right. Now, I'm up at the office with him in his very spacious, big office with a great view of Times Square out the window, you know, like giant windows. And we were right on the corner. And, you know, it was a great place. If you're going to make a, have a distribution company, it's a great place to look out the window and be inspired. And he, he said to me, I said, well, look, while we're here, and he says, yeah, while we're here, what else, do you have? what else do you have? Well, I didn't have anything else. So I started making up the script. I said, well, uh, there's a guy who uh, uh, he's going to create a, a monster from body parts of hookers. And right away, he started laughing. And he said, well, tell me about it. And I said, well, his girlfriend dies in this accident. He goes, well, what kind of an accident? I went, a lawnmower runs her over. And he was laughing. So <laughs> I kept making up this plot while he was laughing until I got about, maybe I got about halfway through the plot and I was exhausted. And uh, he said, oh, I love it. I love it. It's great. He said, let's, he said, do you have a a name for it? I didn't even have a story for it yet. Name? And I'm thinking, oh, Franken, what? Franken whore? No, Franken slut? No. You know, uh, Franken this, Franken that, Franken hooker. Oh, that's just, it just seemed to work as a title, you know? Last thing about Frankenhooker, Frank, then we'll move on. When casting Louise Lasser, was it because you were a fan of Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, or was that just happenstance? What was it about her that wanted you to get her in the picture? No, it was more like I I loved her in Woody Allen's film Bananas. You know, Mm -hmm. everything she does in that film makes me laugh. (laughs) 
you know, I wanted someone that would be believable as a mother. And uh, it just seemed like it would be a funny idea to have her do it. She didn't have any problem doing it until until she got to the set. And then <laughs> it was like, and she's going, I don't get the gestalt of the scene. And that was that. That you know, it was a. She, I don't even think she was there for one day. It was really maybe half a day. If you're just joining us, Frank Cannonlauder is my guest. He left the film industry in the early '90s after Basket Case Three, and thought to himself, "That's it. I'm done." And you know, Frank, I can't help but feel like that was not an easy decision for you to make at that time, or was it? It was a very easy decision because there was no way to go. The whole market collapsed for exploitation films. All the exploitation companies that was thriving, went under, including Shapiro Glickenhaus, including that. All the theaters on 42nd Street disappeared. What are you going to do? So it was like, you know, I could stand, write these stories and then what, and once again, just bang my head on a brick wall or do something else. And the something else I did was very, it was perfect for me because I got partnered with Something Weird Video right in the beginning. And right when we were finding all these great movies that, you know, were forgotten and lost and we un- <laughs> we brought back to life at, to a public that didn't understand what they were and would have preferred them not to be brought back to life, you know? Well, you mentioned it, your partnership and collaboration with Something Weird Video. Uh, how successful was that for you and how did it even all come about? The label was enormously successful. I mean, we did, we had Image Entertainment put out our series. And in the beginning, they were worried about it. They didn't kind of get the joke because they they didn't understand what we were putting out. And I think they were ready to pull the plug on this because there were, I don't know how many, but there were some Christians out there that took great (laughs) offense to, to the stuff we were putting out. Especially the adult ventures, the adult version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Mm-hmm. That's the one that they went nuts with because he turns into a woman and is cutting guys' sticks off or actually fake, <laughs> you know, taking a dildo and throwing it up in the air, you know. Uh, there was a meeting at Image out on the West Coast. And uh, we weren't there for it, but a couple of people who were there and liked our label called us the same day and told us what happened. And they both pretty much mirrored the same story there, that there was a uh, their national salesman was there. And he said, look, he says, I'm hearing all the complaints you have, and I understand. He said, and he was holding up like an adult version of Jekyll and Hyde. And he said, let me be honest, I don't like these kind of films either, <laughs> but they are selling better than anything else we have to put out. So we'd be fools to drop them. And, of course, money talks. So with something weird, basically your job was to find, source, and help release these obscure films, more or less? I also put the, each each DVD together and what extras we're going to have and what this and what that. And then I wrote all the copy for everything. And, look, it was so successful that at one point – well, you remember um, when – what was it? It wasn't Virgin. What was the other big video company that was around? Uh, Tower. Yeah, that was huge. Well, turns out that the booker for Tower would book the something weird discs for every single store in the country because they sold and there were no returns. See, when you put out a film and, oh, God, we shipped, oh, we shipped 2,000. Well, how many are going to come back? Well, in our case, none. And, you know, it was I the way I envisioned what was going to happen is unlike the way we sold VHS, okay, which is mail order. For the DVDs, I said, look, I want to make these four 15-year-old boys can spend 20 bucks on one of these things and drink beer with their friends and laugh. 
So you were working with something weird, and then 16 years had passed, and you ended up making the film Bad Biology, and with so much time in between the films that you had made between Basket Case 3 and Bad Biology, did you ever feel as if your skills as a filmmaker possibly had diminished at all in that time frame since you weren't actively making films? No. No. Once you know how to do it, you know how to do it. In fact, when we started Bad Biology, I was so relaxed, I had a great time. Because I knew exactly where every shot would be. If there was a problem, okay, I knew how to fix it. I loved it. I loved shooting in a crazy mansion. I loved everything about it. So it was very simple and very relaxed. And one thing I should mention, too, I wasn't terribly eager to make another film for one reason is because I was making so much money from something weird. It was more money than I would make made from any of the films combined. Frank Cannelotter is my guest today. We're going to take a brief pause and be back with more after this. Inside of you, there are two wolves, and they're both listening to Massacre Radio. Only on WKMA Cleveland, NHD2 Station. Welcome back. You're listening to Massacre Radio. Today I'm joined by Frank Hennenlotter. Frank, before the break, I asked you about the time in between your films. Do you have any reservations or regrets on getting out of directing for such a long time after Basket Case 3? And I ask that because I know some of your directing contemporaries from the 80s, like Sam Raimi, Peter Jackson, and to a much lesser extent, Stuart Gordon, all went on to find major success theatrically in the years to come. And I can't help but wonder, why couldn't that have been you? You know, Do you ever think about how much differently things could have been for your career had you just keep going and pushing through on through the 90s and beyond? First of all, I liked the independence I had with the films I made. You know, even though there were there were things that, that Jim Glickenhaus was a great supporter of what I was doing, but every so often I would come up with something too far and he'd say, Frank, that's not going to, can we just deal, dial it back? Okay, no problem. But no, I, I didn't. New Line Cinema had their office in New, uh, New York, that's where they started, and then they had an office in L.A. And when we were screening Brain Damage, the New York office loved it, went crazy, said, well, we, we're going to take, we're going to get this. We're gonna, and they started even coming up with advertising lines and, uh, you know, poster uh, art, you know, I mean, just sketches and stuff. And they said, the only thing we need is we need uh, Bob Shea to sign off on it. And he's on the West Coast, so we're going to send him a print. And they saw it and said, no way in hell they've got to put that out. Okay. So I'm not someone who belongs in the mainstream. You know, in the case of Stuart Gordon, I personally wouldn't want to spend my life making films for uh, Charles Band stuff. No, no, no. You made the film Chasing Banksy in 2015. Uh, Banksy, of course, arguably the most famous or well-known street artist of the last 20 years, or maybe ever. Do you remember the first piece of his that you saw that really got you hooked on Banksy art? Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I yeah. made the film called Art Thieves. It was changed to Chasing Banksy at the last minute, and I didn't like it. Well, why did they decide to change the name then? They thought that just having Banksy in it would be enough and would bring people around, but the trouble was... At the time we were ready to put it out, there was half a dozen films with the word Banksy in the title. Now, this is interesting, Frank. I'm going through my notes here as we're talking, and it's my understanding that back in the day, you actually went to go see the film Him, the homoerotic film about Jesus, theatrically. What do you remember most about that experience? Uh, nothing. I mean, it's not. it wasn't the film I was hoping it would be, but he does come down, he comes you know, he doesn't climb off the cross or something, but I think it, at the end is like a hallucination where the main character has Jesus coming down. And I, I'd love to remember if Jesus fucks him or he fucks Jesus, but I can't. 
You know, that movie hymn seems to be lost to time itself, and considering it's a piece of history, have you ever considered tracking down a copy of it, you know, to preserve it, to have for future generations, that sort of thing? No, no, because it's hardcore porn. And, uh, you know, there's a couple of films we did release through something weird, and they were very popular and sold great because they were there was no porn involved with it, you know. And every store back then was starting uh, their own little gay section or, you know. Uh, so, I mean, we did put out some great stuff like uh, Meat Rack and Sticks and Stones and stuff like that. And every one of those sold well. The other one we did try to track down are two films... <laughs> One was called Does Dracula Really Suck? And the other one was Frankenstein to Sod, or they had a subtitle, Hollow My Weenie, Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> Hollow My Weenie, Frankenstein. <laughs> now, in preparation for this interview, Frank, I watched a lot of footage and interviews of you on YouTube, and the one thing I noticed in a number of the videos was this big, huge wall of movies behind you in some cases. I take it that's your personal collection, so I gotta ask you, Frank, what are some of the highlights in your home media collection? Oh, God. I First of all, I approached the films like you would if there were a library and you want. Remember the giant cardboard box versions of films? I collected as many of them. I see them as like first editions. So I have Blu-rays of just about everything, but I'm not going to get rid of those tapes. I was being interviewed for a film about VHS. And I forget the director. He was looking at the stuff on the wall, on the walls and going, oh, my God. Oh, my God. You've got cannibal girls. Uh, oh, my God. Oh, my God. You've got this. You've got. This. And he said, you know, there's one film I'd be surprised if you own because it's so rare. I said, what's that? And he goes, uh, Tales from the Quad Dead Zone. And I said, right over your head. Look at the top shelf. And there it was. And he went nuts. He said, can I, can I hold it? I said, yes. <laughs> you know, go ahead. I also have the VHS in a big plastic clamshell of um, Black Devil Dolls from Hell. I got that one at Hollywood, Hollywood Home Theater. I think that's what it was, Hollywood Home Theater. And they, they had a rent. Wait a minute. It's right in front of me. I'll, I'll just, uh, Hollywood Home. Yeah, Hollywood Home Theater was an early VHS label that had tons of, that only had public demand tapes, you know, PD tapes. But that's where I was seeing all these great Mexican films, too. I was collecting those in this company. And then when I was in L.A., I saw that they had a store. And sure enough, they had a giant rental store, uh, you know, but rental, but you could buy them. But I went there and I saw Black Devil Doll from Hell. And the guy goes, yeah, I put that out. He said it was called The Puppet when I got it. <laughs> I said, well, I'm glad you changed the title. You know, he didn't have Qua he, he didn't have Dead Zone, but he had The Puppet, which is great how Gal says it. The yeah. Puppet. You know, it's like that's like Rudy Ray Moore. He didn't make The Human Tornado. He stars in The Human Tornado. And these were all just things I wanted to own. And I wanted to sort of replicate 42nd Street. I missed it so much. And I liked the fact that whatever I was had on my mind, like I mentioned Rudy Ray Moore. Well, Jesus, you know, it's been a while since I've seen Petey Weed Store. And boom, I just go to the shelf, mm -hmm. take it out, and I'm watching Petey Weed Store. The devil's son-in-law. Wow, Petey Weed Straw. Talk about a pull. I mean, I love Dolomite and Rudy Ray Moore just as much as the next, but admittedly, I'm not as familiar with his filmography as I would like to be. Oh, it's, it's so damn good. 
it's just it's just beyond what you'd expect. It's just a perfect little exploitation film, and and that one in particular, I think he's he's firing on all. It's just he's just it's just a perfect exploitation film, let alone a perfect Rudy Ray Moore film. Huh. Frank Cannonlotter is my guest today. A couple more questions here before we wrap this up. Now, I read back in 2017 that your film Basket Case was selected for preservation by the Museum of Modern Art. How about that? Just for a moment, though, touch on what kind of honor that is and what your reaction was like when you first heard of that happening. The guy who's in charge, the curator of that, I think he phoned me. And I said to him, well, I forget his name now, but he's a hell of a nice guy. And what he wanted to know is they wanted to sh- they were doing an exhibit on Lower East Side Club called Club 57. And he said, I, I heard you're involved with that. And he said, we're doing an exhibition on it, on all the stuff and the ephemera and all the films. And, and it'd be nice to tie you in with it. And he said, do you have a copy of Basket Case that we could project? And I said, no, they're all gone now. You know, and they were. They were all just, you know, 35s eaten up and we never made 16 prints. So I didn't. And he said, well, do you have the material? Materials. I went, oh, yeah. Do you have like the negative? I said, yes, I have the original camera negative of it. And I have the IP and I have this and I have, yeah, I have all the film elements. And he says, oh, maybe if you could donate this stuff to us, we'll make a brand new restoration of it. And then I said to him, have you seen the film? And he says, yes, I watched it twice on DVD and I even listened to the commentary twice. I said, all right, so you've actually seen Basket Case and you're asking if you could put this in the collection of Museum of Modern Art. Okay, good. Yes. Let's do it. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to wait until we're done and then find out that, oh, we're not going to put this piece of shit in the museum. And they did a fabulous, fabulous. And it was a whole conflict. It's how the film looked in 16 millimeter way back when. Did you ever consider the fact that Basket Case would still be talked about and as big of a deal as it is 40 plus years later? I mean, what's that like for you? No, I'm, I'm still. Listen, I've said that at every screening of it. And I said, I never expected this film to be seen. Much to my horror, it's still being seen. So here we go. Yeah, I, I, I'm, you know, what can I say? You can't create a cult film. That's that's the public who decides, oh, yeah, this is a cult movie. We're going to keep it alive. So fine. You know, what's to complain about it, you know? Do you have any projects or anything coming out that the folks listening can uh, look forward to? Well, listen, there's always a project on the horizon, but getting the money is the issue. I'm not a producer. I'm not going to go begging people for money. Too many times we've been promised money that fell through. I just wanted to just retire. I mean, not from, I wanted to retire from the world, not do anything anymore, not be me, not do interviews, not do this, not do that, not do any of this. And just, you know, I'm 73 now. So I'm not the young, energetic kid that wants to let's go make a movie today. No, I'm thinking, well, can I take a nap first and do it in the afternoon? You know, We have so much in common that way. Well, Frank, it has been an honor to speak with you, and we are out of time. There's so much more we didn't have a chance to get to, but we'll have to do it again sometime. And just thank you so much for joining us today on Massacre Radio. Well, thank you. Thanks for asking. I liked uh, uh, Lewis sent me the, uh, <laughs> the three new uh, what. Um, Men from uh, Behind the Sun. Uh, Behind the Sun. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh, my. No, I remember I had that one. You know, that's one of those holy grails you wanted when you were collecting stuff on VHS, you know, and it finally looks good. I mean, I've watched I've watched the first one again, and I was surprised that it's really a serious movie. Although, you know, a serious movie with 
actual autopsy footage, which I really didn't need, <laughs> you know. But right. it's, it's you know, it's it's a it's a film that I can now justify. I mean, you know, taking that little kid and cutting him up, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, what kind of a movie? But he, the director wanted you to be outraged, so it worked. That it did. Hey, Frank, thanks again. Take care and happy New Year, man. All right, same to you. Same to all your listeners out there. Massacre Radio. Oh, love talking to Frank, man. What a great guy. I mean, honestly, he's one of those dudes you can just talk to for hours and hours. Thanks again to Frank for making time for Massacre Radio in the new year. Hey, speaking of the new year, real quick before we wrap this up, my resolution is for more people to call the Massacre Radio hotline. Tell us you love us. Tell us we suck. It don't matter. Don't make me beg. Anyway, I've been your host, Members Only Dave, and as always, I'll talk at you next week. There seems to be some pretty severe brain damage. This message was brought to you by Members Only.